there's benefit in honoring your native language and also your native culture. And then you become a more joyful learner and then you have a better chance to succeed. I'm Sarah Hansen. In this episode, our guest is Michelle DeGraff. He's the co-founder and co-director of the MIT Haiti Initiative, which promotes the use of Haitian Creole in Haitian schools. He's also the instructor of the newly revised course on OCW 24908, Creole Languages and Caribbean Identities. We actually spoke with Michelle back in season one, and he talked about connecting language to issues of culture, identity, and power. In this episode, we're taking a deeper look at some of these themes and how he navigates them with his students. But for those unfamiliar with Michelle's work and presence, let's start at the beginning, the origins of a linguistics professor. I really became a linguist by accident. My first career was as a computer scientist, and I got a wonderful job, which I'll never forget, at at and Bell Labs as an intern, as an undergraduate. And this is where, for the first time, I got to understand that language is really a system of computation where you connect sounds, or in the case of sign languages, where you connect gestures with information, with meanings. And before, I had no clue that that's what defined language. And before that, for the first 20 years of my life, I had never considered my native language, Haitian Creole, which we call Creole in Haiti. I had never thought of it as a real language. In fact, I always thought that Creole was broken French, was corrupted French, was bad French. That's what I was told as a child. So at that moment at HNT Bell Labs, it dawned on me that for the first 18 years of my education, I had been lied to. I had been lied to at home by my parents, who actually loved me very much. So it was a lie rooted in love. Then I was lied to by my teachers from age 3, 4 to age 18. In fact, back in school, I wasn't allowed to speak my native language. In fact, I was punished for speaking it. So then at the labs, it was a moment of epiphany. I actually remember when I realized that Physically, it was a disturbance, you know, to think, oh, gosh, why is it that for all these years, I never thought of my native language as a full language? And that's when I I decided to learn more about linguistics, learn more about what makes a language a language. So back then at Bell Labs, I was actually writing programs for computer scientists and for linguists, trying to create the first versions of things like Siri or Alexa, doing text-to-speech synthesis and trying to understand natural language with computers. So as it turned out, it's the computers that taught me about language eventually. Many of these themes of re-examining childhood experiences and the ways we learn about identity are woven into the course material of 24908, Creole Languages and Caribbean Identities. In the course, Michelle asks his students to examine themselves and the world around them in profound and meaningful ways. The key part that they learn to learn or they learn to uncover is the basic fundamental role that language plays in how they form their own identity and how language structures social relations, the way they view others and the way others view them. And what they learn, really, that I find to be fundamental is the hidden role that language often plays in the creation and transmission of power. Power in terms of opportunities to 
become successful students, opportunities to get good jobs, opportunities to even find a mate. In all these relations, language plays such a key fundamental role that's often hidden. So what they learn to do is to make the hidden visible. You see? And for them to do that, they have to dig deep in their own biographies, in their own attitudes about people. Because whatever attitudes we have about language, it's not just about language. It's really about other human beings, other social groupings, other ethnicities, other even religions, other countries. Michelle asks his students to use language as a historical artifact, one that can challenge histories that have been told through colonial lenses, and that can also reveal so much about the human beings held in that history. In the case of colonized nations like Haiti, and the same is true for most of the Caribbean, it's true for Native Americans in the U.S., it's true for Palestinians, it's true for Africans in many parts of Africa, the way history is written, it's often written from the perspective of the colonizers. Even in a country like Haiti, we've been independent since 1804, but my history book was so colonial. Though our independence was bragged about, was honored, but if you read between the lines, even from the very preface, a Haitian child is taught to despise their own ancestors. Our history book teaches us to revere, to adore the colonizers, including someone like Bartolome de las Casas, who was one of the very early architects of the slave trade. A history book, right in the preface, teaches that las Casas is to be revered as a hero. I think this is perhaps the most striking example of how even an independent country like Haiti, our history books are so thoroughly colonial. But one way to get out of it is to look at language, in the case of Haiti, Haitian Creole, to understand how, from the very beginning of Haiti's history, the Africans resisted this dehumanization. As you might expect, sometimes these conversations can be intense for students. I asked Michelle about how he approaches subjects that directly deal with the cascading effects and trauma of colonialism. Each class, each session is really... It's both reaffirming, but it can make us feel so fragile. Because I went through this, this experience when I was in my early 20s, realizing that how history, colonialism, actually even slavery, have played such a major role in the way I look at myself. It's a very challenging position to be in. And I can tell you that in our class, there's been tears shed. Michelle explained that one commonly difficult subject for students is examining the processes of assimilation. So many of the stories students confront in this class involve exploring the trauma of assimilation, especially when it leads to devaluing or even abandoning their cultural heritage. Children of immigrants in the U.S., because of social pressure, because of this push to assimilate, their parents really give up on the ancestral languages and cultures. And then when the students, when they go to college, like in this case, you know, when they take my course, and then they understand the roots of this pressure to assimilate, then they really see themselves as victims and they 
realize the loss because there is so much loss in not having kept your ancestral language. And, and I myself as a parent, I, I know it because I know how difficult it is in the case of my own children to keep Haitian Creole alive in the household. And because there's, again, even as a linguist, there is so much pressure that you have to struggle to make sure that your children can keep speaking Creole in a world where it's not viewed as being useful. So it takes lots of efforts. And I'm a linguist. I know that speaking, honoring your native language in no way would prevent you from learning a second language or a third language or a fourth language. It's not either or. What's key is to recognize that your native language, in the case of Haiti, Haitian Creole, is a basic tool to build strong foundations to learn science and math and all other types of knowledge, including second languages, right? So you can have it all. Once you realize that there is no need to exclude, on the contrary, there is benefit in honoring your native language to use it as a tool to learn other things, like French, for example, you see. And, and we have data that confirm it, not just in Haiti, but also in Hawaii, in Africa. In fact, there are very robust data that show, for example, in, in Hawaii, children who are immersed in Hawaiian actually succeed in becoming better speakers of English. You see, so it's not either or. On the contrary, there's benefit in honoring your native language and also your native culture. And then you become a more joyful learner and then you have a better chance to succeed. One of the unique aspects of this class is how it draws on students' personal experiences to teach about cultural phenomena, like the origins of linguistic power structures. So to get some deeper insight about the class, we spoke with two of Michelle's students. My name is Diana Ferguson. I am currently a rising junior at MIT with an intended major in the physical sciences. And I was a student of 24908 in the spring 2022 semester. Presently, I'm in my homeland, uh, St. Vincent and the Grenadines. It is a 33 island nation in the Southern Caribbean. I enrolled in 24908 as being a Caribbean national and having lived in the Caribbean all my life, I was very interested in an outside perspective of the Caribbean in terms of its identities and its Creole languages. The class really made me think very differently about the world. Every week, someone in the class is in charge of leading a discussion based on the assigned reading for that week. And you had to connect your reading to your experience and expand on something that resonated with you in the reading. So I like to say that we were presenting our world to each other. So my difficulty was that I had to share my world with persons who have not experienced it, and rightly so, because each person has a different outlook on the world. So my running theme was always to make my classmates understand my world so that when we discussed things, they would be able to see why and how I said things, understood things the way that I did. Um, so you wrote this really great article, Linguistics and Economics in the Caribbean, Who Speaks Creole? I'm wondering, could you tell us what your article was about? The article is entitled Linguistics and Economics in the Caribbean, Who Speaks Creole? examines the reasons why Creole languages have been devalued 
and it investigates this from a socioeconomic perspective where persons who view themselves as upper class or wealthy tend to speak an acrolect which is a variety of creole closer to the colonizing nation's language while those of lower socioeconomic status speak basilect which is a variety of creole furthest from the colonizing nation's language caribbean nationals perpetuate the disuse of creole as we have been conditioned really since the period of slavery and taught that being able to speak a standard language affords or guarantees success and proves intelligence. Not everyone goes from a course assignment to publishing for the public. So I'm curious how you made that transition. I think we would have to thank Professor DeGraff for that because I wrote this piece with no intention of publishing it. For me, it was just a subset of a project that I had been working on and I was just exploring the ideas and researching about linguistics and the Caribbean. But Professor DeGraff spoke to me about publishing it and he gave me some time to think about it. The deciding factor was that I saw it as a way that Caribbean persons or even the world in general could be made more aware of themselves and this could have an impact uh, for further generations. Overall, I want the article to encourage Caribbean persons to be proud of their Creole languages and I want to encourage them to be able to speak Creole and their standard language as I opine that doing this gives one different ways of interpreting the world. The other student we spoke with got just as much out of Michelle's class, even though she grew up in a very different part of the world. My name is Vivian Sansour, and I was born in Jerusalem. I grew up in Palestine and spoke Arabic. That's my native language. I grew up in a small little village called Bejala. It's in the Bethlehem district. And for me, language could mean life or death at time. I grew up under Israeli military occupation, so if I was identified at a checkpoint and I didn't understand what the soldier said in Hebrew, if he said come and I left, or if he said go and I came, uh, it could mean literally the death of me. Many Palestinians have died at checkpoints. Vivian shared how Michelle was able to create a space that was safe for students to honestly share their personal experiences of their world, and what that did for her as the only student in the class not of Caribbean heritage. The first thing he did was actually bring himself to the table, and that in itself opened our hearts to see that, you know, whatever we bring to the table is going to be safe. When someone shares their vulnerability, it allows you to feel safe to do the same. And he offered that generosity, not knowing who's in the class. And I think he engaged in a very gentle, yet gradual process of us developing slowly trust with each other to the point where by the end of the class, like our presentations, I feel were deeply personal and quite profound. I think 
we were able to understand our personal experiences within the context of a political structure in the world. I mean, one of Michel's powerful approaches is that while the class is about the Caribbean, he does a great job of weaving in how the Caribbean relates to other things and other places and what was happening in the world. And that big vision is, I think, urgent in our times. And that's part of why I connected so much to the class. He didn't think it was super strange that a Palestinian woman wants to learn about the Haitian Revolution. He found ways to weave it into uh, my own experience. And it allowed him, I think, to learn about me. So I felt that his curiosity about who we are, not just me, I mean, every single person in the class, allowed us to feel seen and to feel that who we are and how we see the world matters. And that is significant because then you're motivated to actually discover and become more curious about the other rather than just dismiss other people's experience as something that you can't relate to. Each time you teach that course, you have a different group of students. It's almost impossible to predict how to make sure that each student is going to feel safe enough in the course. So I start with having the students fill out a linguistic autobiography for them to learn to reflect on how they were socialized into certain beliefs about what they speak, what their parents speak, what others in the community speak, for them to start becoming aware of the role that language plays in the socialization. And that's a very delicate exercise because they have to start asking themselves questions about what they believe about themselves through language. I tell them about my own biography. I'm very honest about the fact that for a good chunk of my life, I was really in a state of mental slavery without being aware of it. You see, but then once I bring that up, some students feel freer to also describe their own experience having these attitudes that are very much prejudicial against certain varieties of languages, including sometimes their own or their parents. But others, I can see, you know, they brace themselves. You know, Some of them do not feel safe enough to open up and to share these kind of experiences. And I tell them, look, when you present in this class, I don't want you to just summarize the readings. You have to take the readings and see how they apply to you to your community, to your, sometimes to your parents. You know, if the parents, you know, grew up in the Caribbean or grew up, say, elsewhere, where there was these strict language hierarchies, you want to apply those readings to those familiar cases. And some of them are comfortable doing it after a bit, but you can see that others resist it throughout. And I think it's because it involves certain skills that I might not have, having to do with, say, psychotherapy, because some of it is really getting deep into the ways you were made to think of yourself as a human being. So and so that can be very challenging. But, but what I find is that in many cases, actually maybe in most cases, there's a sense of liberation. It's very cathartic to become aware of these patterns in your own life. Michelle shared with me how cultural conceptions about Haiti are deeply fraught, due in part to the way its history has been told. So the New York Times, I don't know if, if you've seen it, they had a recent series that came out and the, the articles were published in English and for the very first time for the New York Times in Haitian Creole. 
and also in French. And the, the article is about the ransom that the French forced on Haiti for friends to recognize Haiti's independence. That was back in 1825. The French engineered this really a double debt. They, they imposed a ransom of 150 million francs. So they brought these boats on the coast of Haiti. They said, well, we're going to bomb you out if you don't agree to paying back this amount. Haiti had to pay to former slaveholders for the loss of the property because of Haiti becoming independent. This is the only time in the history of the world that a nation that became independent after winning the war of independence, after freeing themselves, had to pay, quote-unquote, reparations to the slaveholders who were defeated by the war. And that amount in today's dollars is worth 21 billion plus. And, and economists have done various simulations to show that with that so-called debt that Haiti had to pay, Haiti would have never been able to develop as a normal nation. I always teach about that ransom in my course. I've been teaching it for decades now. So I knew about this. But what the New York Times did was to document it very closely in terms of how much exactly Haiti paid to the French and where did that money go. And then, of course, the U.S. in 1915 also came to Haiti and further ravage Haitian finances by basically stealing money from Haitian banks. So it's a, it's a really ugly story. But one major gap in the New York Times story is the failure to analyze the cultural and intellectual aspect of the ransom. So in fact, there's another ransom that Haiti had to pay. That's the cultural linguistic ransom. Because as the French impose this quote-unquote debt on Haiti, they also force Haitians to adopt a system of education based on the French language. So in 1860, there was a famous contract signed that forced Haiti to accept teachers from French Catholic orders. And those teachers, the mission was to impose French and French values on the Haitian school system. My history book is a result of this agreement with the French, you see. So Haiti has also been held ransom through language. And this is another factor that explains why Haiti has been so impoverished from the very beginning of its history. This role can be so hidden and so invisible that even a very detailed account of the French in Haiti still fails to analyze that aspect of neocolonialism. So let's stop saying that, quote-unquote, Haiti is the poorest country of the Western Hemisphere. Instead, let's understand why it's so poor. Let's understand the roots of Haiti's misery. And the roots of Haiti's misery is in the ways that France and the U.S. have ravaged Haiti's finances in abominable ways. Since recording this, Michelle has published an essay in the New York Times addressing this gap. We'll put a link to his essay in the show notes. Before we end the episode, Michel had something he wanted to share in Haitian Creole. Just to give the English speakers a sense of what I'm going to say, I'm going to actually really riff on the theme of Black Lives Matter. If Black Lives Matter, then our languages as Black people also matter. So, as a compatriot, it's really important to understand 
origine précisée contre langue créole là. Mais faut que nous songer de salinité diaclé. Tout le monde c'est monde, il te connaît tout. Si tout le monde c'est monde, toute langue c'est langue. Et langue créole là, c'était langue tout. C'est pour ça qu'elle te dit depuis en 1804 faut que nous parler langue à nous. Nous pas besoin tout le temps à parler langue les autres. Donc faut que nous songer si nous pas de créole là comme langue, nous pas jamais qu'à réussir faire révolution ça qui te ban nous en Haïti qui indépendant. C'est créole là qui te langue révolution qui fait journée aujourd'hui faut que nous servir avec langue créole là tout comme langue enseignement. C'est langue ça qui permet tout petit monde dans pays rive joindre bon gens connaissance comme ça doit. If you're interested in teaching or learning with materials from the updated version of 24908 Creole Languages and Caribbean Identities, please visit our website at ocw.mit.edu. You'll find all the materials there. And as always, they're free and open. You can help others find the materials too by subscribing to the podcast and leaving us a rating and review. If you enjoyed this episode, you might also want to check out our season one episode with Michelle, Unpacking Misconceptions About Language and Identities. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, signing off from Cambridge, Massachusetts, I'm your host, Sarah Hansen from MIT OpenCourseWare. MIT Chalk Radio's producers include myself, Red Pachi, and Dave Lashansky. The show notes for this episode were written by Peter Chipman. Peter also built the updated course on our site.